Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 21, and we're taking a close look at the Mount Erebus disaster when Air New Zealand McDonnell Douglas DC-10 crashed on the 28th of November 1979, killing all 257 passengers and crew. At first, it looked like straight pilot error. A CFIT or controlled flight into terrain accident. But that would change as inquiries led to court cases. Of all the accidents I've described, this one has some of the most unfortunate sets of circumstances and one of the most difficult recoveries afterwards of any aviation accident in history. Mount Erebus is on Ross Island, part of the Antarctic archipelago, and as you'll hear, a judge eventually called some evidence presented by Air New Zealand executives as an orchestrated litany of lies, and which took 30 years before anyone at the airline formally apologised for that deceit. To say the court processes which took place were riven by bitterness and a distinct failure of leadership is an understatement. In fact, the phrase an orchestrated litany of lies entered the QE lexicon for some time, and by the end of this episode, you'll probably see why. The first aviation inquiry found pilot error caused the accident, but then a judge in a follow-up investigation ruled the cause was incorrect data, which had been knowingly left in a flight computer, despite the error being reported. When a judge uses a phrase like conspiracy by senior management, then something has gone seriously wrong in terms of governance. But the legal wrangling didn't end with the judge. There was an appeal, then an intervention by the Privy Council in London, as New Zealand is a Commonwealth state. So let's go over the facts that are not in dispute. Flight 901 was marketed as a unique sightseeing experience where the passengers paid around 360 US dollars each to be flown over Antarctica with an experienced guide who pointed out features and landmarks using the plane's PA system. Some big names had been involved. For example, Sir Edmund Hillary had acted as a guide on flights and was actually supposed to be on board Flight 901 that day in November 1979, but cancelled because he had other bookings. Unfortunately for longtime friend and his climbing companion, Peter Mulgrew, he was available and stood in for the hero of Mount Everest. Mulgrew would never return from the Antarctic. The flight plan was complex compared to a normal commercial route. After the 5,360 miles from Auckland to the frozen south, the pilots would put the DC-10 into a series of low-flying sweeps out to the sea of McMurdo Sound or over the Ross Ice Shelf or both, depending on time and the weather, then they would return home. There had been 13 previous flights which went off without serious incident and the whole concept had started two years earlier in 1977. It became a great money spinner for Air New Zealand, not to mention an excellent marketing tool. Come fly with Air New Zealand and see the world's least visited continent for a cool 360 New Zealand dollars, which would now set you back around 1,300 US. The flight left Auckland International Airport at 8 a.m. on the morning of the 28th of November and was due back at 7 that night. Usually, flights would not be full to capacity so that there would be space allowing passengers to walk about and get a better view of the incredible frozen continent from different places in the cabin. Cocktails would be served for the travellers as they clicked away on their cameras, many of whom would also be puffing away on cigars and cigarettes. The aircraft that day was Air New Zealand's McDonnell Douglas DC-1030 Trijet, and the plane registered Zulu Kilo November Zulu Papa. It had logged more than 20,700 flight hours prior to the crash. 
45-year-old Captain Jim Collins was in charge, assisted by 37-year-old co-pilot Greg Casson. Neither of the two had ever flown to Antarctica before, although the flight engineer Gordon Brooks had flown there once. There was also a second flight engineer on board who was named as Mr Maloney. The flight crew attended a briefing on the 9th of November, 19 days before they were to take off for the Antarctic, and they were handed a copy of the previous flight plan to scrutinise. This is where much of the legal dispute arose later. The flight plan that had been approved in 1977 by the Civil Aviation Division of the New Zealand Department of Transport was along a track directly from Cape Hallett to the McMurdo Non-Directional Beacon, or NDB. But someone had made a critical mistake. It was a simple but critical typing error in the coordinates when the plan was converted from paper to computer. It's known as finger trouble in common parlance, and this time it would be fatal. Someone had changed one of the global coordinates. When the pilots looked at the briefing plan, it clearly showed a southerly flight path down the middle of the wide McMurdo Sound, the ocean. But the finger trouble meant the computer was actually coded to fly the plane straight at Mount Erebus, which was nearly 12,500 feet high and close to 80 miles off the proper track. Chillingly, the majority of the previous 13 flights had also entered this flight plan's coordinates into the aircraft navigational systems and flown the McMurdo Sound route, unaware that the route flown did not correspond with the approved route because they had descended to visual conditions after relying on the McMurdo radar to do a letdown. This is a bit technical, but it's worth understanding. Letdowns are when a pilot takes directions on track and altitude from a radar controller on the ground. Another pilot by the name of Captain Leslie Simpson was also due to take passengers to the Antarctic earlier on the 14th November, two weeks before the ill-fated flight. He attended the same briefing on the 9th and picked up the error in the coordinates. The coordinates of the McMurdo Takan, or Technical Air Navigation System Beacon, three miles east of the McMurdo Non-Directional Beacon, were not in line with the waypoint the flight crew had entered in the inertial navigation system. Sorry, lots of acronyms, but it's really important. The INS. So this needs a bit of explaining because it was one of the underlying causes of the accident, whatever Air New Zealand lawyers claimed later. First, the Takan. It's a system used by the military which provides a more accurate bearing and distance than the commercial VORDME system. The Takan is a military tactical air navigation system, T-A-C-A-N. It provides the user with a bearing and a distance to a ground or a shipborne station. Importantly, it includes what's known as the slant range. Imagine an aircraft at 40,000 feet flying towards a Takan. The distance must include the angle down to the Takan. So if you're 100 nautical miles away, you have to add the additional angle distance so you're actually further away than you think because the dot on the map is in 2D. So 40,000 feet is more like 7 nautical miles, so you're actually 107 nautical miles from the Takan. Sorry, that's a bit convoluted, but the Takan is part of the picture of the crash, so we need to understand what it does. Only the DME, distance measuring equipment, part of the Takan or distance measuring is available for civilian aircraft. Just one more thing about this. Vortec capabilities are VOR combined with Takan, and here civilian aircraft receive VOR DME readings or Vortex. Yeah, no. Too many acronyms, but I think also just to say that, for example, the Space Shuttle used Vortex navigation until it upgraded to GPS. Most airlines now prefer GNIS or GPS systems, but back in 1979, that great innovation was not available. So, 
back to our story. At the November 9th briefing, our wide awake pilot Captain Simpson recognized that the coordinates of the McMurdo Tuckan navigation beacon, three miles east of the McMurdo NDB, were actually wrong. He noted this error, and later, on the 14th of November 1979, after his own flight to Antarctica, Captain Simpson informed New Zealand air navigation officials that there was indeed a very large discrepancy of something approaching 80 miles. And it's their response that is rather a shocker. Air New Zealand navigation officials simply resolved the discrepancy by changing the McMurdo waypoint coordinates stored in their computers to correspond to the coordinates of the McMurdo Takan beacon. At 1.40 a.m. in the early morning of 28th November, just before the flight, navigation section technicians proceeded to update the McMurdo waypoint coordinates stored in the airplane's flight computer, but then didn't tell the captain, the first officer, or the engineer. The die was now cast. They thought they would be heading west of Mount Erebus, but they were actually aiming directly at the mountain, and their own computer was incorrectly coded. Why did navigation techies fail to alert the crew to the changes in the coordinates? It remains one of the mysteries of this flight, and was never fully explained despite multiple court cases, hearings, inquiries, and probes. Worse, as we'll hear, when the plane entered Visual Meteorological Conditions, or VMC, upon arrival at the Antarctic, it would experience something none on board had ever seen, a whiteout. As with all aircraft accidents, multiple errors mount up and cause a catastrophe. So imagine the crew at the briefing. There's a map on the wall and a line showing that they're going to fly past the major surface threat. That's embedded in their memories and their own navigation computer on the plane displays the same. The problem is the numbers have been changed so that the plane is now actually 80 miles off course in the final leg and heading straight for the mountain. The crew didn't recognize the contradiction even though this leg would place them at an altitude of 13,000 feet. In other words, they were only going to be a few hundred feet above a steep-sided summit. But of course, they didn't realize they were going to be aiming at one of the Antarctic's highest peaks. By the way, our rules are clear. We must fly 2,000 feet above any high ground over 10,000 feet. But the litany of maverick decision-making didn't end there. When the standard telex was forwarded to the U.S. air traffic controllers at the United States Antarctic Science Base at McMurdo Station, it merely displayed the word McMurdo instead of the coordinates, which was standard practice. Why was this done? During the second inquiry after the accident, Justice Mahon concluded this was a deliberate attempt to conceal the actual flight plan from the United States ATC at McMurdo because the New Zealand air navigation staff knew that the Americans would lodge an objection. That would mean a no-fly order and would cost the airline. So just rather signify McMurdo and hope that the crew spots the mountain when they descend into visual meteorological conditions, VMC. Of course, helped, hopefully, by the McMurdo Americans' radar letdown procedures. Had the correct coordinates been inserted, the US ATC would have picked this up and denied permission for the entire flight. Yes, Hindsight is an exact science. However, you can see how already the bending and breaking of rules inevitably leads to an incident or a catastrophe, as it did in this case. The New Zealand pilots had dodged a bullet 13 times. Number 14 would be a direct hit. So let's consider what happened next. When the aircraft finally entered the approach to McMurdo Sound, 
The cloud base was reported at between 2,000 and 3,000 feet, and the usual maneuver would be to conduct a figure-eight descent over the ocean. This would allow the aircrew time to establish visual contact with the surface of the island, particularly the infamous Mount Erebus, rising steeply, and by that stage to the east, or at least south-southeast, of where the McDonnell Douglas would be descending. This was where the crew decided to ignore the minimum safe altitude stipulated in the standard operating procedures. But they had heard other pilots had done the same, although most pilots later would deny that they did anything of the sort during the follow-up hearings. So, aircrew of Flight 901 were supposed to descend only to minimums of 16,000 feet, just over 3,000 feet clear of the dreaded mountain. Safety first, you know. If they established their turn south of Mount Erebus, only then could they descend to a new minimum safety height of 6,000 feet, but with the mountain clearly visible in visual meteorological conditions. That was another safety protocol, and the cloud base, by the way, had to be 7,000 feet or higher to boot. You know, pilots talk to each other. The briefings are only part of the information gathered. What had been going on for some time was that these folks had been breaking the standard operating procedure minimums in order to give their paying customers a great view. By the way, this is not my hypothesis. Photos and even newspaper reports by those who flew earlier show that many previous flights dropped to levels substantially below the minimums. A culture of gratuitousness had developed amongst pilots with the excuse that it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for their clients, so give them a little extra. What is alarming is how many denied they did this later. Then there was the role played by the US ATC based at McMurdo Station. As the Air New Zealand flight approached, McMurdo was supposed to pick them up on their radar and then conduct what we know as a letdown. This means the pilots follow commands from a controller on the ground who has radar and is directing the pilot to a particular point. Once safely away from Mount Erebus or other high ground, they would then be allowed to descend to 1,500 feet, but only if radar tracking of the plane was established continuously. In a terrible coincidence, on the morning of 28th November, as Flight 901 approached McMurdo Base, the American radar failed to pick up the aircraft. Worse, and at the same time, the aircraft could not establish VHF communication with the Takan, which means the all-important distance measuring equipment failed to lock onto the McMurdo Tactical Air Navigation System properly. What does this all mean? Well, the crew had no really accurate idea about where they were, despite navigating all the way across the Southern Ocean to the icy Antarctic. Things were going to turn into a can of worms and quickly. At the same time, the crew flying the aircraft believed they were over the ocean because their programmed computer told them so. But we know that the final leg had erroneous data punched into the plane's computer. What a terrible combination, folks. Passengers' photographs and even film footage found later showed that the plane was clearly flying over the island in the final stage. There are images, for example, of exposed rocks and crevasses. But the crew, of course, were fixated on the distance, not the immediate surface below the aircraft. We know the crew was flummoxed because the cockpit voice recorder transcripts reveal they featured comments that they thought they were west of Mount Erebus when in reality they were flying straight towards this towering creature. The transcript itself has caused controversy with arguments about some of the phrases used. The published version differed in more than 50 ways from what officials initially reported. I've been reading the copy known as the Washington Transcript, which is regarded as the most accurate. So, 
After descending to 10,000 feet and north of Ross Island, Captain Collins was flying the plane and decided to hold as First Officer Casson continued trying to regain contact with the American base on the radio. They switched comm channels to number two and First Officer Greg Casson broadcast. Mac Tower, New Zealand, 901, how to read now, 1341, he said. There's an unintelligible reply a few seconds later. U.S. control at McMurdo finally says they're losing comms as well. The plane is circling at 10,000 feet, with the pilots believing they're now west of the mountain, but they don't have radar to confirm this. There are also clouds around obscuring the view, and they're hoping when they descend, everything will open up. Of course, the plane's VHF can't read the Tuckan, so they don't really know how far away from the tracking station they are, nor how far from the mountain. The flight deck commentary also indicates there were five different men present in the now crowded space. The captain, the first officer, two engineers, and the tour guide, Mulgrew. The controller on the ground warned that his radar was failing to pick up the Air New Zealand flight. On board, Captain Jim Collins said to the crew that they're going in VMC and then come back in, and started to plan the figure of eight descent. First officer Casson said, turn it 2,000, then 2,000 feet is armed. In other words, he'd punched in the limit on the computer, which alerts the crew when they've descended to 2,000 feet. A few minutes later, they asked control about the cloud layer report. Ah, Roger, New Zealand 901, 50 miles north of the base was 10,000. 10,000. The base of the clouds were thought to be at 10,000 feet. By then, 901 is already at 6,000 and descending to 2,000 in visual meteorological conditions. On board, the crew agrees they have fairly good visibility. The pilots are talking to each other and concentrating 100%. There is no idle chatter. Then Peter Mulgrew, the tour guide, who was sitting in the flight deck, used the plane PA to address passengers, saying, This is Peter Mulgrew again, folks. I still can't see very much at the moment. Keep you informed. Soon as I see something that gives me a clue as to where we are, I'll let you know. It's the last time he'll talk to them. A minute later, flight engineer Brooks asks, Where's Erebus in relation to us at the moment? An unknown voice replies, left about four or five miles, about 11 o'clock. Left, do you reckon? Asks another voice, which can't be recognized. Well, I think, is the reply. I've been looking for it. Tour guide Mulgrew then says, I think it'll be left, yeah. And the other flight engineer, Maloney, agrees. Yes, yeah, no, no, I don't really know, Mulgrew says. Then, that's the edge. He's thought to be referring to the Ross Arshelf which the crew believed was directly in front of them, with Mount Erebus on the left, to the southeast. What was going on was that they'd actually approached the edge of Ross Island glaciers with the foothills of Mount Erebus awaiting. They were at 2,000 feet and flying directly towards the 12,400-foot mountain. There was then some discussion about speeds, then the sound of an altitude alert. First Officer Casson says, I see vert speed for 1,500 feet. And Engineer Brooks says, it's not right, and he appeared concerned. Spending a very long while on bloody instruments at this height, are you, um, but he was interrupted. Ross Island there, said Mulgrew. Another voice, thought to be Brooks, said, Erebus should be there. And we think he was pointing out at the left window and perhaps contradicting Mulgrew. We don't know, but this tells you the crew were technically lost. First Officer Casson was watching instruments closely, then warns, terrain 1500. They were flying level, and yet the ground was rising to meet them. At this point, the slope was gradual, but that was about to change. 
A few seconds later, the captain asks, Ah, we didn't get the tuck and frequency, did we? No, replies the first officer. Actually, those conditions don't look very good at all, Captain Collins mutters. He was experiencing the whiteout and was becoming uncomfortable. No, they don't, said Engineer Maloney. The plane is at 1,500 feet. Although it's flying straight and level, it should be at 2,000 feet. The ground is rising. While they can't see forward, they are experiencing a form of visual blindness called a sector whiteout. That's where contours and landmarks become indistinguishable and worsened where there's ice covering the ocean so that there's no contrast between the two. And the clouds at high altitude cause a white-on-white background, worsening the condition. If pilots are flying visual meteorological conditions, this becomes even more dangerous. It's disorientating and at low altitudes potentially deadly. If you combine all of these dangers and realize that a critical waypoint had been inserted incorrectly into their flight computer, you know that a catastrophe is in the offing with a very big mountain in the immediate vicinity. Meanwhile, don't forget, the pilots are using a track inserted in their plane's computer that was off by 80 miles. They have every right to think their computer is reading correctly and the mountain is in fact off their left wing somewhere. It was now five minutes after Flight 901 had descended into VMC and all five members of the crew continued looking around to try and see the mountain, which was in front of them shrouded in the sector whiteout. The first officer then tries reaching McMurdo Base again, but there's no answer. That's possibly because they were in the radio shadow of Mount Erebus. Tour guide Mulgrew is heard saying, Looks like there's the edge of Ross Island there. In fact, the edge of what's known as Ross Ice Shelf was actually to the right of the slopes of the mountain they were approaching. Engineer Brooks then says, I don't like this. Have you got anything from them? asks Captain Collins. No, says the first officer. We're 26 miles north. We'll have to climb out of this, the captain said. Okay, says an unidentified voice. Then the first officer says, it's clear on the right. Is it? asks the captain. Yep, confirms the first officer. You're clear to turn right. There's, says the first officer, but the captain rejects this option, saying, no, negative. No high ground if you do a 180, suggests the first officer. By now, all of those on the flight deck are realizing they're in a spot of bother. At that moment, the ground proximity warning tone begins. Altitude. The flight engineer, Brooks, says tersely, 500 feet. Altitude. The plane is supposed to be flying level. A moment later, he says 400 feet. Altitude. Now they all know. The plane is over rising land. It's the most likely option. Go around power, please, says the captain. At that point, the recording stops. Six minutes after descending into VMC, the DC-10 ploughed into the lower slope of the mountain, killing everyone on board. Coroner's reports indicate they all died instantly. It was 10 to 1 in the afternoon. A few minutes later, McMurdo Station tried to raise Flight 901, but there was silence. They informed New Zealand headquarters that all comms had been lost. United States search and rescue personnel were placed on standby. At 2pm, a number of aircraft were launched to search for the plane. By 3.43 in the afternoon, there were six aircraft in the sky over the area looking for Flight 901. Of course, they were looking far to the west of Ross Island. Back in New Zealand, relatives were beginning to arrive at Christchurch where the plane was supposed to land for refueling and a crew change before completing the journey back to Auckland. Then at 9pm New Zealand time, that moment arrived that everyone dreaded because at that point the plane would have run out of fuel, wherever it was. The DC-10 was listed as lost and eventually 1am the next morning the crew of a US Navy craft discovered the debris lying along the side of Mount Erebus. 
It was summer and light most of the day and night, which allowed for a 24-hour search. Around 9 o'clock, 20 hours after the crash, helicopters with search parties managed to land on the side of the mountain. They confirmed that the wreckage was that of Flight 901 and that all 237 passengers and 20 crew members had been killed. The DC-10's altitude at the time of the collision was 1,465 feet. It took weeks to recover most of the bodies, and without the Japanese government pressurizing the New Zealanders, it might have taken even longer. 24 passengers on board were Japanese. 60 search and rescue members were deployed. Many later described the terribly difficult process of trying to sort through wreckage in one of the coldest places on Earth. Chillingly, they began to fight off the skewer seagulls, which were picking at the human remains. This led to all body parts being gathered in a huge pile which had to be covered with snow to keep the sharp-billed culls away. To maintain their sanity, the head of the rescue group allowed the men to consume the bottles and tins of alcohol on board that had somehow survived the crash. Despite the isolation of the site, both the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder were recovered, both in working order. Even more important, a number of passengers' cameras were recovered. And importantly, a number of passengers' cameras were recovered and loads of film was developed. The entire wreckage area was surveyed, found that the collision of the aircraft with the ice left a clear impression of the fuselage, the wing-mounted engines and the flap hinges. They had hit the slopes in a wings-level nose-high altitude when the impact occurred. The attempt at a go-around had just begun when the crew ran out of luck. Following the initial impact, the aircraft rose back into the air once more over the mound of ice and snow displaced by the impact area and flew up the 13-degree ice slope. Number two engine mounted on the tail fin continued running at full power even after the accident, then shut down from fuel starvation. Much of the integrity of the aircraft actually survived, as it was climbing roughly at the same angle of the landscape. It was not a direct flight straight into the ice. The fuselage broke up early in the crash sequence, and the majority of the victims were ejected before the last of the wreckage came to rest, with most of the remainder thrown clear by the final impact. The spread of the wreckage covered an area 570 metres by 120 and crossed two crevasses which made recovery of some bodies and parts of the plane impossible. Incredibly, the largest portion of the aircraft remaining was the complete section of the damaged cabin which was still attached to the wing centre and inboard sections. So, furthermore, one of the fuel tanks survived intact but the others ruptured on impact. Then an intense fire began immediately afterwards. Although it was found that everyone on board had died in the crash itself, none showed inhalation of smoke. As the report stated matter-of-factly, the accident was unsurvivable. It further said, All of the injuries sustained indicated a deceleration at impact that could not be survived with the type of restraint provided by a seatbelt. Additionally, very few occupants appear to have been wearing these seatbelts. Film footage of the final seconds showed most passengers were actually wandering around the cabin, many drinking champagne as they stared through the windows. I would like to think that the severity of the impact meant none knew what hit them. Eventually, 213 people of the 257 on board were identified. But the story developed further during the inquiries, leading to a Privy Council ruling, as I said. So let's deal with each section. First, the official accident report by New Zealand's Chief Inspector of Air Accidents, Ron Chippendale. It arrived a few months later in June 1980 and cited pilot error as the cause. Captain Collins was blamed directly for descending into VMC when the minimums were clearly stated as 6,000 feet. 
One of the most telling moments was analysis of the voice recorder, which Chippendale said included the phrase, bit thick in here, eh, Bert? That phrase was never part of the CVR and analyzed by other voice experts, but somehow Chippendale stuck to his version he'd actually heard on the recording that had never been recorded. He copped a huge amount of flack for his refusal to change his position, mainly because there was no one called Bert on the flight deck, and the phrase presumed thick cloud. It also presumed flight crew culpability and reinforced his position that the entire crash was caused by the pilot. After much to and fro and later, the phrase was actually found to have been this is Cape Bird, one of the inlets on the west side of Ross Island, which would have been on the east of the flight path. But public pressure on the authorities began to grow. The people felt cheated because by now reports surfaced that someone at New Zealand Navigation had punched a wrong digit into the flight computer. Not to mention the hundreds of pictures that started during the rounds provided by previous passengers, proving that other pilots had definitely descended below prescribed minimums. Eventually, the government of New Zealand relented and the one-man Royal Commission of Inquiry was set up led by Justice Peter Mahon and tasked with taking a closer look at Chippendale's flawed document. In April 1981, Justice Mahon's report was published, which cleared the crew. Instead, Judge Mahon pointed out that the cause was actually the waypoints being changed without informing the pilots. In addition, Mahon referred to a malevolent trick of light, the whiteout conditions, and the extremely rare sector whiteout as the main reason. That's the visual illusion of a flat horizon in the distance, as I said. He also found that the U.S. base station had cleared the plane to descend below 10,000 feet despite not having the plane being tracked on their radar. There was an awful lot of deviation from standard procedure going on. It was like the Wild West, but to the south. Mahan then blamed airline executives and senior pilots, saying they had engaged in a conspiracy to whitewash the inquiry, accusing them of an orchestrated litany of lies by covering up evidence and lying about it. It must be said that Chippendale had never investigated a complex jet accident, and neither had the New Zealand CAA. Both had probed light aircraft crashes, and their knowledge of more complex accidents was limited. And both were aware that their friends in government and at Air New Zealand had a lot to lose. Mahon then ordered Air New Zealand and the Civil Aviation Division to pay the costs incurred by the consortium representing the estates of the dead passengers, the New Zealand Airline Pilots Association, and the estates of the pilot and co-pilot. He ordered the airline to pay an additional $150,000 towards the government's costs. But instead of taking the medicine, Air New Zealand executives demanded a judicial review. Clearly, they did not consider themselves liable, despite overwhelming evidence. Their appeal failed in their main bid. That was to overturn the finding that members of the management of Air New Zealand had conspired to commit perjury before the inquiry in order to cover up the errors of the ground staff. But the appeal court did rule against costs being carried by Air New Zealand and the Civil Aviation Division, which meant the long-suffering families of those involved had to foot their own legal bills. Judge Mahan was upset about that, so he in turn decided to approach the Privy Council in London regarding the costs, believing the CAD and Air New Zealand were accountable and should pay. It was the Privy Council in London's decision that caused a distinct ripple of horror to run through the families of the victims as well as New Zealand Airline Pilots Association. You see, the council ruled 
It was not conceivable. Other pilots had tried to deceive the initial hearings regarding breaking the minimums, which of course we know they had done. These company men, and they were all men, had told the initial inquiry that they had never broken 6,000 feet. The law lords of the Privy Council under the chair of Lord Diplock further found that Mahan had acted in breach of natural justice in making his finding of a conspiracy by Air New Zealand management, which they ruled was not supported by the evidence. They effectively exonerated the executives when all evidence was actually against them. For families and Judge Mahan, the finding was a real shocker. These British peers basically destroyed Mahan's career and upended the sentiments of the family's professional pilots and independent observers. I suppose Mahan could have initially swallowed his pride and accepted the cost's verdict, but in the end, he was the one who demanded the Privy Council intervention and ended up finding most of his ruling overturned. That's not the end of the tale, folks. The fallout didn't end with legal tussles. First, because of Flight 901 and another crash of a DC-10, American Airlines Flight 191 in Chicago six months earlier, McDonnell Douglas' reputation was in tatters. All DC-10s had been grounded after that incident in the US. Now they were grounded in New Zealand. This marked the beginning of the end of the DC-10s in New Zealand's fleet. Boeing 747s took over. Then all Antarctic sightseeing trips ended globally. Qantas of Australia only began these again in 1994. Air New Zealand waited 33 years before restoring the chartered flights in 2013. The scars had cut so deeply. Judge Mahan's report was only officially tabled in New Zealand's Parliament in 1999. In 2008, Justice Mahan was posthumously awarded the Jim Collins Memorial Award by the New Zealand Airline Pilots Association for his contribution to air safety and forever changing the general approach used in transport accidents investigations worldwide. A year later, 2009, Air New Zealand CEO Rob Fife apologised to all those affected who did not receive appropriate support and compassion at the time. This was still a mealy-mouthed response, according to victims' families. Finally, on the 28th of November 2019, on the 40th year anniversary of the disaster, it took a woman to apologise. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern finally issued one of the most belated mayor culpas in the history of aviation. She made a formal apology to the families of the victims expressing regret on behalf of Air New Zealand and apologised on behalf of the airline, which 40 years before, she said, had failed in its duty of care to its passengers and staff. I think that about sums up the situation. Finally, there was accountability, but it took a woman to stand up to the old boy network of Air New Zealand and the Civil Aviation Division, as well as the doddering old codgers of the Privy Council. The registration of the crashed aircraft Zulu Kilo November Zulu Papa has never been reissued. Meanwhile, on Ross Island in the Antarctic, all of the aircraft's wreckage still lies where it came to rest on the slopes of Mount Erebus and other bits deeply entombed in the inaccessible glaciers. The human remains are gone. Its remote location means recovery of the wreckage is virtually impossible. When it's very, very cold, the crumpled bits lie buried under layers of snow and ice, forgotten. But recently, as global warming increases temperatures, much of the wreckage has emerged from the melting snow once more, like a terrible memory that won't go away. And in New Zealand, the phrase, an orchestrated litany of lies, 
is a part of popular culture amongst those of a certain age. Well, that's it for this episode. We will probe the deadliest mid-air collision in history, which took place in November 1992 between a Saudi Air and Kazakhstan Airlines aircraft in India, where all 349 passengers and crew on both flights perished. This led to the semi-circular rule we now use to prevent aircraft from flying at the same altitude and was the leading case to enforce the mandatory use of Traffic Collision Avoidance Systems, or TCAS, in the world. Ten years later, TCAS was under scrutiny again with the Uberlingen accident of 2002. That was a famous story because a man who'd lost his entire family tracked down the Swiss air traffic controller on duty when these two planes collided and stabbed him to death. But more about that next month. Until then, aviate, navigate and communicate safely.